<laughs> I'm wondering how the city approved a bonfire in the middle of 100 degree heat. <laughs> Not a bonfire, campfire. <laughs> but they, they, they were fine. That's how we do it. Yeah, we just don't ask. <laughs> if you have a Bible, please turn in it to Hebrews chapter 12. We are continuing this letter to the first century church, and most of it was considering the greatness of Jesus Christ. There were many chapters, and then we had a whole chapter on examples of people who followed Jesus, followed the Lord in faith, Old Testament saints. And now we're moving into chapters 12 and 13, which are application, which is like, how do we follow in their example? What does it look like for us to walk by faith following Jesus Christ today? And so let's get right into it. We're going to read Hebrews 12, 12 to 24, and then uh, we'll pray. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Two mountains, two different ways of life. We've come to the second one, Mount Zion. Lord, give us eyes to see. These are illustrations, these are analogies, these are pictures for us to grab onto, to see what it is that's so great about following Jesus Christ. What are the promises that have been given to us? And so we ask this morning that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to obey and respond to the great vision that you've put out for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
There's a highly acclaimed World War II miniseries called Band of Brothers. Uh, it's about Easy Company from the 101st Airborne Division. It follows them through boot camp to parachuting into Normandy, uh, all the way through the war until victory in Europe. The first episode is called Kurahi, which is named after the mountain that they would often run up as a group. They all had to run up this thing three miles up, three miles down. That was their motto. Uh, they're going up this thing as part of their training. And at first, they're slow, they're out of shape, they're grumbling and complaining. Uh, they're a bunch of strangers thrown together to go and fight a war. But by the end of boot camp, they're fit, they're disciplined, and they're running together as a unit with this shared identity of easy company. No longer are they strangers, they're a band of brothers helping each other to run to the top of the hill and through the war and on to victory. This passage that we just read pictures something similar for the church. It exhorts us to help each other finish the race of the Christian life together. We start out sort of a ragtag band thrown together, but by God's design, and then we move through life together, growing through all the trials and things that face us. Uh, the chapter begins in verse 1, comparing the life of faith in Christ to a race. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The race is this lifelong endeavor to love God and your neighbor with courage and compassion, with truthfulness and humility, and not shrink back from the faith even when you're opposed for living it out. And we're to keep on doing it to the end of our lives, looking to Jesus as our Savior and as our example. But then after giving incentives for living that way, the writer returns to this athletic illustration in verse 12, and he says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So this is about running that race of loving God and loving your neighbor, but not letting the weaknesses and the injuries take you out of the race. Your faith can get weakened, weakened by life's disappointments and challenges. Your faith can, can, you can lose heart, you can lose courage if you get into all sorts of trauma in life, the bad stuff that's happening to you and happening around you. And so we need this exhortation to, to stay in the race, to keep going. But it's not just an exhortation to each individual person to sort of buck up and, and pull yourself together and find strength on your own to kind of do it and take a run at this thing called life. Actually, it's about the church doing that for each other. This language that we read in verse 12 is borrowed from Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. And in that situation, in Isaiah, the Lord is speaking to Israel. A lot of bad stuff is happening. God is judging the nations. They're suffering. But there are these words of encouragement. But it's not always going to be like that. There's, there's hope ahead. And Isaiah is, is told this, strength, 
Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. So the, the context is the people of God, whether in the Old Testament it's Israel or in the New Testament it's the church. But God is telling the church in both places, strengthen each other with the truth. Talk to each other. Put courage into each other with the truth so that you can keep on running this Christian race. We're to be alert to people who are struggling, to people who are failing, falling behind, people that looks like they're, they're starting to drop out of this race altogether, maybe leave the faith. We're to help them. In other words, we're to picture the church like the soldiers running up Kurahi Mountain early in their training. Like, that's us. We start out not in a good place, not in great condition. <laughs> and it takes a really long time. It takes a whole life, actually, to keep on growing. But let's do this thing together. Let's run up the mountain together. Let's help, us, help each other get there, persevere, following Jesus, obeying Him. That's the picture that we should have. That's what this, this uh, passage is talking about. We can't do this alone. The passage speaks to the issue in two parts. Part one is how we help each other finish the race. And part two is the big picture, remembering why are we doing this? How did we get in this race to begin with? <laughs> what, what's the environment in which I'm doing this race? That'll be part two. Let's start with part one, how we help each other finish the race. Verse 14 gives us two main instructions. The first one is strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone. Strive means make a great effort to obtain. <laughs> make a great effort to obtain peace with everyone, to have good relations with one another. We may or may not be successful in obtaining peace with others because Romans 12, 18 reminds us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It doesn't all depend on you. Not everybody wants to live peacefully. The psalmist said, I am for peace, but they are for war. So somehow it doesn't always work out, but we're to make the effort from our side to be at peace with others. This is something that Jesus said is going to characterize those who follow him. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking is what God the Father did with us through the cross. Jesus was sent by God to die for our sins, to bear our guilt and our penalty, to satisfy God's justice for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. In Jesus, God made a great effort to obtain good relations with us. And so we respond in faith by, on our side to his initiative. <laughs> and we receive those good relations. We are reconciled when we respond in faith to him. And if God has done that for us, 
sinful people that we are, how can we not do the same for one another? How can we not pursue peace with each other if God has pursued peace with us? Peacemaking is what we do if we're changed by the gospel. So how do we help each other in the Christian life? It starts with striving for peace with one another because good, good relationships are necessary. Um, we, if we don't have good relationships, how are we going to really help each other? If we can't stand being around each other, if we don't want to even be in the same room, how are we ever going to help each other? It's got to start with having good relations. We've got to have peace. And that if overflows to people outside the church as well, for sure. But the church is the primary community in mind here. This is the group that's running uphill together to, to the race of life. The Christian life. Now, what does strive for peace look like in practice? How do we do that? I think it might be helpful to think about what the opposite is first. That comes to my mind much more easily. Um, what is sure to ruin good relations? <laughs> what will make us not want to be around each other? I can think of a few things. Being critical and fault-finding. Dwelling on people's shortcomings in your minds and looking for opportunities to say what's wrong with everybody. That doesn't make for peace. Being quarrelsome. Always ready to pick a fight with somebody if they say something that you don't agree with. Or just plain avoidance, which is a kind of self-righteousness. I just don't want to be around other people who are annoying or have problems. I want to be around people like me who don't have those things. <clears throat> it's easy to come up with examples of how not to strive for peace because those things are natural to the human heart. I mean, if you read like a uh, political social media post and you read the comment section that follows that, you're ashamed to be human. I mean, there's anger, strife, accusation, just exaggeration galore. And you're like, what in the world? But that's what's in our hearts, naturally. That's what's down there. Strife, angry words, self-righteousness. That's what we do apart from the grace of God. But the Lord is building a different kind of a community. It's called the church. It's people that are humbled by their own sins and amazed at God's grace to the undeserving. It's people who have disagreements, but they're not looking for a fight. It's people who believe the best about each other until proven otherwise. It's people who restore one another in our sin in a spirit of gentleness. It's people who have patience with one another, who are for each other who are quick to hear and slow to speak. And when we speak, it's to build up rather than to tear down. That's an environment that's suited for peace. I receive this kind of grace from Mary all the time. That's what came to my mind when I was thinking through these things. We had a dog incident this week. Willow ate something that was poisonous to her an unknown quantity of garlic cloves from the pantry. And so she needed to go to the vet to get that out of her system before it digested. Now, the last time something like that happened and we went to the vet, that was like $2,000. So immediately I'm thinking, how much is this going to cost? And I'm looking for somebody to blame. 
and I'm looking for somebody to, to, for, to express my frustration about this situation. It happened to be Mary. That's what she got from me. I was not cordial when she volunteered to take Willow to the vet. I was more like, yeah, I'm not doing it. This isn't my fault. <laughs> she didn't respond in kind. She wasn't looking for a fight. She dropped everything to deal with the situation. As soon as she drove off, drove off I knew, yeah, oh, I didn't handle that well. I knew I needed to apologize. I saw my self-righteousness. So when we met up again, dog crisis averted. She was a peacemaker. We put it behind us. And it also helped that it did not cost $2,000 this time. That does help my inner peace quite a bit. <laughs> Strive for peace with everyone. That is how we help each other finish the race of the Christian life. But it doesn't end there. If it did, we might just think this means, well, we just talk nice to each other. We just smile a lot. We stay at a superficial level. We don't deal with the real serious stuff like sin or bad thinking. But that isn't the case. We don't stop at making peace because there's a second exhortation here in verse 14. It's strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We also make a great effort to pursue holiness to put away sin from our lives, to follow God's will even more closely day by day. That is also necessary if we're going to help each other to follow Jesus Christ in this life. That's not a new concept, this holiness. We saw it in the previous passage when it said, God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Because His holiness, the life lived under God's will, with his mind, that's, that's good for us. His intention is to make us holy as he is holy. In fact, it's the pursuit of holiness is a sign that we actually are in fellowship with God, that we're actually saved. Because the text calls it the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If there is no holiness in your life, no struggle against sin, as verse 4 described it, then it argues against you being a real Christian. It's an indication you will not see the Lord. You will not reach heaven. That's a sobering thought. At the very least, this exhortation to strive for holiness means that individual believers and the church as a whole cannot become comfortable with our sins. We can't make peace with all the remaining fallenness in our lives. A church is no longer aligned with the purposes of God if we settle for being at peace with each other, but we don't also make a great effort to obey God. A church is a place where it's safe for sinners of any stripe to come and find hope and healing in Christ. Everybody come in. 
That's the only people that there are, is sinful people. Come on in. It's a safe place for sinners, but it's not to be a safe place for sin. Not a safe place where we don't urge each other on to holiness. To use language from verse 1, we are to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's, their sin is like this thing that entangles you, gets around your legs. It's this heavy backpack. It's all this stuff that keeps you from running, from going. It's hindering you. So let's get rid of that. Let's help each other drop that weight so that we can experience the freedom of following Jesus and all the good stuff he's got for us. That's what this is talking about. Sin is like running injured. You could even drop out of the race altogether if you cultivate and keep that and love that in your life. So we help each other put away sin and unbelief. We help each other to keep repenting and believing the gospel. That's all we're doing. We're given the example of Esau in verses 15 to 17. Here's a guy who did not strive for holiness. <laughs> and so he serves as a warning about not pursuing holiness together. About Esau, it says this, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, quote, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Now notice that Esau failed to obtain the grace of God. What does that mean? He failed to obtain it. It means he didn't avail himself of the undeserved favor of God that is offered to us. He could have sought the Lord. He could have with confidence drawn near to the throne of grace like Hebrews 4.16 talks about, but he didn't do it. Instead, if you know Esau's life, you know about him that he was a man who was ruled by his desires rather than by the Lord. The example that's given is that he sold his birthright for a single meal. So that story, going back to Genesis 25, one day he's out hunting for game all day long. He comes home. He's famished. He sees his brother Jacob making some stew. And he says, give me some of that. <laughs> I'm starving. Jacob says, sure, I'll give you some of this, but I want something in exchange. I want your birthright, which is his status as being the firstborn of Isaac. In our culture, birth order is no big deal, but in those times, the firstborn carried the preeminence in the family, the place of leadership and responsibility. And to be the firstborn of Isaac, who is the heir of the promises of God, that meant Esau, the firstborn, was expected to pass on the fear of the Lord to the following generations. But Esau didn't care about that. To him, <clears throat> eating dinner was more valuable than that status. More valuable than God's purposes through Abraham and Isaac. And so he sold his birthright for a single meal. In Genesis 25, it says Esau despised his birthright. 
So later, when Jacob also stole Esau's blessing from Isaac, Esau was mad, but not repentant. He found no chance to repent, though he sought for it with tears. Being upset at the consequences of your sin is not the same thing as turning from your sin. Esau was upset, but he wasn't changed. And repentance is change away from your sin and toward God. So the example of Esau is not just of a person who sins once in a while and he feels bad about it and he wants to change. No, it's a person who sins out of the heart, who doesn't really want to change, who isn't genuinely aligned with God's purposes. And a person like that is called a root of bitterness who springs up and causes trouble. The root of bitterness isn't a feeling. It's a person. The person who's ruled by desires instead of by the Lord. And that person in your midst, in your church, will cause trouble. Many will be defiled if they learn that person's ways. So one of the ways we help each other is to say, where's your life going? Which direction are you going? What what?" Trying to discern what's going on there. Is there a genuine alignment with God? Or is there not? <clears throat> what, does it mean, what does it mean for us who are called to help each other in the life of faith? It starts with our own hearts. Just our own, just our own where are we at when we're coming to our meetings? Do we gather with the church only to get information or affirmation, or do we come to become more holy? Is that part of why we meet, that I actually want to grow? I want to be more conformed to the image of Christ. I want to obey. Is that part of why we meet? Do we recognize our own need for change? And the church, as the people that God has put into our lives, to help make that change. If we do, then we come to Sunday meetings and small groups in a position to be helped. We won't get offended by somebody's question like, are you sure that was a wise thing to do? <laughs> or how are things going in your marriage? We won't be offended by that. We won't feel like, well, there's, that's private territory. Nobody needs to know that. But if we have a heart that I want to grow in holiness, well, then I'm open to these questions. Striving for holiness also means becoming more alert to those who are struggling around us and willing to help them get through whatever it is that's dragging them down, whatever's contrary to Christ. At best, a person in obvious sin is a genuine believer whose current struggle is just hindering their growth in Christ. It's like an injury that needs to be healed. At worst... It could be evidence of a deep-seated unbelief. It could be evidence of a root of bitterness like Esau, somebody whose heart is genuinely not converted. Either way, the Lord would call us to be alert to the people around us who are struggling. We don't write them off. We don't self-righteously avoid them. We move towards the struggle. We help lift drooping hands. We help strengthen weak knees. 
We bring the encouragement of the Scripture. We bring reminders of God's promises. And we bring our practical wisdom when we have it. <laughs> the Christian community is a place where we help each other heal from sin and its effect in our lives. In Romans 15, 14, Paul said to the church that everybody can do this. He said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Able to instruct one another. You don't need a theology degree to be helpful to somebody else. You don't need to be a professional counselor. You don't need to have all the answers. All you need to be is somebody who's genuinely got the Holy Spirit within you, and you have God's Word, and there's something that's happened in that transaction. God has changed me so that I have at least something to share with you from the Lord. And I can walk with you. I can be your friend. I can hear you out. I can assure you that you're not alone. Those are things that we can all do for one another. So how do we help each other finish the race of the Christian life? By being true friends. We strive for peace. We strive for holiness. We do this together as we're for each other. We need the church to help run this race. Now let's turn to the why. Let's remember why we're doing this. Why do we make a great effort to be at peace and to be holy? It's because that's how we enjoy the great vision of what we've been given in Jesus Christ. The rest of the passage, verses 18 to 24, we can call a tale of two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. They represent two totally different realms of existence. One represents life separated from God. The other one, life with God. We've been called into the second one, life with God. But we need to remember it, and we need to live in the good of it. So let's see what the text has to say about these two realms of existence. First, Mount Sinai. This is verses 18 to 21. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of those who made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is a reference to Exodus chapter 19. Israel had gone out of Egypt they had been in captivity for slavery in slavery and, and everything in Egypt, and they came, finally released, and they wander the wilderness, and they come to Mount Sinai. And God makes his presence known to them on the mountain. But it wasn't a pleasant experience for Israel when God revealed himself that way. What they encountered with God on Mount Sinai was a blazing fire, Darkness, gloom, a tempest, an unbearable voice, a terrifying sight. Even Moses, who was invited to meet with God on the mountain, said, I tremble with fear. So their, their encounter with God in the wilderness is marked by fear. It was like standing next to an active volcano. Terrifying. They realize we are in the presence of enormous power that could take us out in a second. But they're also aware we are in the presence of pure holiness, and we are unholy. 
Because Moses goes up to the mountain to meet with God, he comes back down with God's instructions for the people that they should consecrate and purify themselves. They weren't to touch the mountain. They were not even to let an animal that had touched the mountain come near to them. It had to be killed from a distance by stoning because it had become holy. This is a picture of life separated from God. God is there, but in our sin, we're not allowed to come near to Him. He's just too holy. If we were just to walk up to God, we would be put to death in a heartbeat because He is of purer eyes than to see evil, as the prophet Habakkuk talked about. It's not safe for us sinners to be with the holy God. We can't be in His presence without some kind of mediation, someone to bridge the gap for us. This is a picture of our natural situation in the world. We come into this world as unholy before God who is holy. And if we understand the implications of that, like Moses did, we would tremble with fear. But that is not the situation for believers. Not believers in Christ. Because verse 18 says, You have not come to Mount Sinai. Not that first one. That was your experience, but that's not you anymore. Rather, your experience, the realm of existence that you've been called into through faith in Christ, is represented by another mountain. Mount Zion. And that mountain represents life with God as the objects of his favor and his blessing. That's described in verses 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I mean, you can tell right away there's different language here, isn't there? (laughs) We're not hearing words like blazing fire, gloom, tempest, fear. We're hearing language of joy and belonging and redemption, the opposite of all those other things. This is a totally different experience. And it describes the unseen reality into which all believers in Christ have been brought into. Each phrase lands on us with encouragement. This mountain is called Mount Zion, which on earth is the location of the city of Jerusalem. In Psalm 48, 1 and 2, the is- Israel saying that this is God's holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north the city of the great king. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is where God chose to make himself known on a different mountain than Sinai and in a different way. But here we're not talking about earthly Jerusalem, but we're talking about heavenly Jerusalem. The city of God that John saw in Revelation 21 as the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The heavenly Mount Zion is where God will dwell with man in peace forever. It's our dwelling place, beautiful beyond description. The joy of all the earth, the joy of the new earth, which is going to be restored by Christ. 
Joy, not fear, marks this life that we're brought into. We're told that there are angels there in festal gathering. It's a festival. It's a party. It's a celebration. There's no gloom and doom there. There's no stoicism. There's no, like, uh, this is a boring day. It's a party. It's festive. (laughs) It's full of happiness, cheer, jubilation. Revelation says it's a place without tears. Can you imagine a life without tears? With nothing that could ever make you sad and cry. That, That life exists. We only have tastes of it right now, but that life is coming. This place is the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Assembly, same word used, same word translated church. You've come to the church of the firstborn. Firstborn, that describes the character of the church, the favored ones, the ones who receive the most inheritance, the ones especially loved by God the Father. This is a picture of the church in glory, full heirs of everything that Christ is heir to, this new world, this forever joy, this being with God. You're full heirs, the firstborn. You're all enrolled. It's there. It's yours. We come to God, the judge of all. Not judge in a threatening way to condemn us, but a judge to vindicate us. The judge who rules in our favor, who counts the righteousness of Christ to us and says, blameless. (laughs) But we will not only be counted righteous before God, but we are actually becoming righteous. We will become righteous in our very natures. The text says, we come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirit of the believer who dies is instantaneously perfected. And in the resurrection, we'll also receive a perfect body to match that perfect soul. This is our quest for holiness completed. In this life, we're never going to be without sin. But in the life ahead of us, we will never be able to sin again. There will be no cause for repentance, only for celebration. But as good as that is, and it will be very good, the writer leaves the best for last. He says, we have come to Jesus, to Him, to the one that we believe and trust but have never seen. We have come to Him. Already He lives within us by His Spirit, but we will come to Him personally, physically, and walk with Him. And what this Jesus did, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel Abel was the first person ever murdered. And his blood cried out from the ground, the Lord said in Genesis. Cries out for justice. But the blood of Jesus, who was also murdered, does more than cry for justice. It accomplished justice. He received the punishment that our sins deserve. 
and satisfied God's justice. For our sins are against him. And Jesus became the mediator between God and man. That's why his blood speaks a better word than Abel's. And we will see him face to face. What a difference this experience is from Mount Sinai. The same God whose presence struck terror into Moses and the people of Israel will accept us, has accepted us, in peace through the blood of Jesus. I've been talking mostly in terms of the future, what will happen, but we have to realize this is something that has happened. This is actually our present possession, all of this. Because the text doesn't say, you will come to Mount Zion, but that you have come to Mount Zion. And to all of these things, we don't experience the fullness of it yet, but it belongs to us now. This is in the bank. This is our present possession. All that remains is the consummation at the end of the world. But today, at this moment, as you sit here in this room, if you trust in Christ, you have been swept into this realm of life with God and all of its eternal benefits, and with all the people of God from every generation. You're already linked, united. But it, we don't naturally think this way. It doesn't feel like this on many days. What's visible to us, what we know about, is our heartache and the tragedy and the failures, and the weaknesses, and the trials. And so we get discouraged. Our hands droop, our knees are weak, the limbs are lame, and we need help to keep running the race. Where does that help come from? That help comes from you all. God strengthening us through His people who speak to one another. And remind each other, there's something bigger than this. There's something bigger than the immediate problem that's going on in your life. Yes, it's hard. I'll walk with you. I'll cry with you over that thing. But there's so much beauty. There's so much promise. And it's secure. You have come to it. It's here. It's yours. But we lose sight of it because of what's in front of us. And so that's where the people in the room, the people in your small group, the people that you're speaking with after this meeting, that's where we help each other keep going. God is with us. God is for us. We, our sins are forgiven. There's a massive eternal party waiting for us in heaven. So these things being certain, let's lift the drooping hands, let's strengthen the weak knees, and let's press on in faith. Let's meet on Sundays for this, and in small groups, and in potlucks, and in one-on-ones. We can do it for each other. Like Easy Company, we'll go through many tribulations in this life, but with each other's help and encouragement, we will endure 
and finish the race together and enjoy God's goodness along the way. Let's pray. Lord, may it be so. We thank you that every one of us here can be a means of grace to somebody else. Your grace is available to us. Help us to avail ourselves by not being isolated and alone, not trying to figure everything out on our own strength and our own understanding. Help us, Lord, to receive grace from one another through encouragement, through a word here and there, sometimes of correction, many times pointing to Mount Zion. Thank you, Lord, for the great promises that we have in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.